Well, good morning. Y'all having a good day today and uh, nice in this warm summer day. Um, but we're delighted you're here. Welcome to the Lewa campus. And uh, my name is Tom Nelson. And especially if you're uh, visiting today, it's maybe it's a first or second time, uh, it's a delight to have you here. And if you've been around a long time, it's great to have you here too, right? You know, we're all trying to live healthier lives these days. Uh, it seems like everywhere you go, people are talking about health and fitness, and I think that's a good thing. Recently, I was at the doctor's office and um, waiting for my appointment. And what do you do when you just sort of wait for an appointment? Um, well, you can look at your cell phone, uh, do some things, but I sort of was looking at the magazines. You know, in doctor's offices, there's all these health magazines. And one of the magazines stood out to me because all of a sudden on the front it had these words, the silent killer. I'm like, maybe I should read that. <laughs> so I opened it up and it told the story of physical diseases. I guess there are several of them. If you're a physician, you know this. They really do not give any early warning signs. There's no symptoms really early on. But this silent killer was the description of hypertension. And it went on to describe how it just slowly <laughs> destroys your heart. You're feeling fine on the outside, you're looking good in the neighborhood, and something bad's happening inside, slowly. And as I read that, you know, I thought, that's not the only silent killer of the human heart. There's another one that we don't usually talk about, doesn't get the press. And that silent killer of the human heart is spiritual apathy. It's a silent killer that knows no bounds. It does not discriminate between young and old. It affects all of us, men, women, rich, poor. It is a deadly one. And yet, sometimes we don't realize what's happening to us. Apathy is really this listless concern, this devaluing what is really important in life. Spiritual apathy is just the air we breathe, it seems to me, in our cultural context. We often don't even know it's happening to us. I love the story of a researcher visiting college campuses. And uh, the subject of this sociologist was apathy on campus. And so the researcher goes to the student union, student center, and randomly walks up to a guy watch, looking at his cell phone and says, excuse me, sir, uh, I'm taking a survey on this campus on apathy. I'd like to ask you a couple, couple questions. What do you think about spiritual, or spiritual, what do you think about apathy on this campus? To which the guy immediately says, I don't know, and I don't care. <laughs> That's it, isn't it? That's how we all approach it. And the bad news is that spiritual apathy can happen to any one of us. None of us are immune to this. It's a toxic thing. And the bad news, if unchecked, if not diagnosed, if not intervened, if not monitored, it will kill us. But the good news is that if it is diagnosed early in our hearts, if it is monitored, if healthy heart lifestyles change, then spiritual apathy does not have to be terminal. And this is the message, I guess Alan called it the Italian prophet Malachi. 
If you have your Bible open, if you have not opened yet, turn to Malachi. This is the hard-hitting message. Remember, last week, if you were here, um, we are walking our way through the prophets. Last week, we looked at Jonah, and Jonah, I said, is like the velvet hammer of grace. We like that message. But this prophet is a little bit more typical, and I want to suggest to you that he is, I mean, he's the sledgehammer of them all. Malachi has some hard-hitting words for all of us, including me. So before diving in, let's set the historical context, okay? Now, the time of Malachi is the time we call, and scholars call, and historians of Jewish history call, the post-exilic period. You want to impress your friends at school? Talk about a message you know about the post-exilic period, right? That's a lot to get out of your mouth. But it's an important time in biblical history and Jewish history. Along with Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi is a part of this group, and this period begins in an edict of toleration in human history, in ancient history, by Cyrus the Persian king. It was an important moment in human history and in Jewish history because in 538 or 539, we can debate that a long time, scholars wrestle with that, either one of those two years, Cyrus allows God's covenant people who have been exiled in Babylon for 70 years to go back to their homeland. I mean, it's like a ticker tape parade celebration. They scoop back, but some big challenges await them. So Malachi enters. Malachi was written about 100 years after the Edict of Toleration in 538. So 100 years, God's covenant people have their feet have got back to the land. They've, they've come back to the land, but their hearts are dragging behind. And before, external enemies were the great threat. But now we begin to see that the enemies of the heart are the greatest threat to God's covenant people, and particularly one silent killer, spiritual apathy. And this is manifested in bare bones, minimal religious commitment, and apathetic hearts. God, of course, knew this. So he sends Malachi. Malachi's name in Hebrew means my messenger. And wow, does he have a message. I like to call Malachi actually Dr. Malachi because the book of Malachi really can be understood as a physician giving a diagnosis and then a cure. As you read Malachi, it's four chapters, it's not hard to get into, it's a powerful book. The first two chapters are really dealing with the diagnosis. A good physician looks at you and says, this is what's going on, symptoms and so forth. And then a good physician gives the cure, the prescription, and that's in chapters 3 and 4. So as we think about Dr. Malachi addressing the silent heart killer of your heart and mind, spiritual apathy, I'd like to raise two questions and the trajectory of our conversation, I'd like to follow that. The first question is, what does spiritual apathy look like? What does it look like? And secondly, the second question then is, how is spiritual apathy cured? What does it look like, and what's the cure? The first question occupies chapters 1 and 2, and I'd like to highlight those briefly for you. The first two chapters of Malachi, we understand that there are two foundational sympathies of spirit, or sympathies, excuse me, 
There are two symptoms of spiritual apathy. Apathy symptoms. The first is doubting God's goodness, doubting God's goodness, and secondly, giving God our leftovers. Notice how Malachi begins this book. If you have your Bible open, look with me at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 1, the oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Now, it's important for us to grasp that addressing spiritual apathy, God immediately affirms His love for His people. The word love here in the Hebrew text is not a love of obligation, a love of familial connection. It is a tender, affectionate love. If some close friend, a spouse, or someone you cared for came up to you and said, uh, you know, I really, really love you, what would be your response? I, I would say back, you know, I really love you too. God comes to His covenant people and says, I love you with an everlasting love. I love you so tenderly. You're the love of my heart. How, does, how do God's people respond? <laughs> how have you loved us? Whoa. In fact, the book of Malachi has literary markers that carry the weight of the meaning of the book. Nine times in four chapters, this little phrase you see in English, you see in your text, but you say, flows through the book. This week, if you want to look more at Malachi, nine times, and it's in a certain symmetry. In chapter 1, there are four references to it, verse 2, verse 6, verse 7, and verse 13. In chapter 2, there are uh, two references, 14 and 17, so you go 4, 2, and then 3 in chapter 3, verse 7, 8, and 13. How we understand what this question is helps us to unpack the meaning of this book. And I want to suggest to you that underlying this question is cynical doubt in God's goodness. It's not a question of teachability, it's a question of cynicism. And the cynicism is directed at God's character, that God really loves them, that God cares for them, that His goodness is what… His goodness is so good, He wants our goodness too. Let's not forget that the evil one is introduced in the Genesis account as interjecting cynical doubt to Eve. Before sin entered the world, before temptation hit its target, Satan said to Eve, are you sure God is good? Are you sure God has your best interests at heart? God's holding back on you, Eve. And she took the bait. The consequences reach into your heart and mine today. See, when we really think of bad sins, if I were to ask you to you know, write a list of all the bad sins that come to your mind, what would be on that list? I want to suggest to you that Malachi exposes perhaps what's on the top of the list It's a really biggie, 
regardless of how we rank it. And that is doubting God's goodness. Oxford writer C.S. Lewis, in I think his most brilliant work, we can debate this, is the screw tape letters. Screw tape letters, you have this picture of a senior demon teaching a younger demon how to do his trick. And this is what Lewis writes. It does not matter how small the sins are, provided their cumulative effect is to edge the man away from the light and into the nothing. Indeed, the safest road to hell is the gradual one. The gentle slope, soft underfoot without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. I think this is what Malachi is saying. Cynical doubt in God's goodness is a gentle, gradual slope, but it is inevitably a perilous one in our hearts. One of the symptoms of spiritual apathy, the silent killer of your heart and mind, is to doubt God's goodness in our life. And the next symptom flows from that, and that is giving God our leftovers. Look with me at verses 13 and 14. But you say, you see that phrase again? But you say, what a weariness this is. The idea is monotony, drudgery. And you snort at it. <laughs> Malachi is a spicy Italian prophet. I mean, isn't it amazing? You snort at it. Says the Lord of hosts, you bring what has been taken by violence or lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering? Shall I accept this from your hands, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has made, who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of the armies or the host, and my name will be feared among all the nations. Malachi goes right to the heart. God's covenant people are doing the unthinkable. They are giving God, the one true God, their leftovers in worship. Now, I have traveled around the world some and been in many cultures. Some of you have, and some places I've been have been wealthy and some have been poor. But there's a common thread. When I go to someone's house, they give me the best they have. When a guest comes to your house for dinner, do you not do the same? I mean, when's the last time you invited a guest over and said, here, this is the spaghetti and meatballs we had last week out of our refrigerator. Have it and enjoy. <laughs> or here's the half of the Chipotle burrito I didn't eat last week. Here. <laughs> Unthinkable. This is what God's covenant people are doing to the one true God. They are devaluing the one who has the highest value. And in verse 14, I told you he's a sledgehammer. You ready? Malachi says, you're a cheat. Now, cheating has many nuances, but the Hebrew text has the idea of a sleight of hand misdirection, pulling the rabbit out of the hat, 
It's fraudulent. It looks good to others, but God sees through it. Listen, I went to a movie recently. It's just out. Um, it's a really kind of a fun little movie. It's called Now You See Me. Great actors, Morgan Freeman and Michael Caine. And there's a crew. The story is illusionist. And I won't tell you a lot of the story. You, you, you just have to enter if you go to this movie. You just, I can't tell you this, right? It would just be wrong for me. But one thing you learn about the tricks of illusionists is their primary trick is misdirection. This is exactly what Malachi is saying. Malachi is pointing out the misdirection of their corporate worship. They have this dying lamb. He's terminal sick. They bring him to the altar to worship. Everybody thinks, ah, he's giving him his lamb. And every, this guy knows this guy's going to die the next day. It looks good to everybody else. But God knows it's the leftovers. Lest we think that's not a serious sin. If you want some sweet bedtime reading, read Acts chapter 5 and Ananias and Sapphira in the New Testament. When they brought their offering in a faulty way to God in the New Testament. Doubting God's goodness often leads to dishonoring Him in worship. And Malachi is saying to us, when spiritual apathy settles in your heart, joyful generosity moves out. A dying, apathetic heart says, let God have the leftovers. But a passionate, healthy heart says, God, I just can't wait to give you my best. You're so worthy. Spiritual apathy doubts God's goodness, and it leads to giving God the leftovers of everything we are, our time, talent, and treasure. Because spiritual apathy makes for faulty worship and faulty faith. Malachi lays it on the table. Now, as we get to chapters 3 and 4, the focus of the book, we begin to see how spiritual apathy is cured, and there are three antidotes to the toxic reality of spiritual apathy. The first one is heartfelt repentance. That's the thrust of the book in Malachi 3, verses 6 and 7. Let me read that for us. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me. And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? That's the picture. Malachi reminds them of their long history of disobedience, and he uses the strongest language in the book. Grammatically, this is the crux of it. Return to me. There is a sense of life and death urgency woven in this phrase. It's like a doctor saying, quit smoking or you're going to die. That's the idea. Repentance is a word we often use, even in Christian circles. If you're checking out the church or faith, repentance is not a word we often use, but it's an important one. Repentance is not just a heart remorse, feeling sorry. I mean, that's a part of it. Repentance is more than just saying, I'm sorry. Repentance 
awakens a desperate heart that is moved to change. A life going one direction, heart, body, soul, and turning the other way. That's repentance. What is amazing, what Malachi is saying, is repentance stops apathy in its tracks. Right there. What does a repentant heart look like? He continues. The second antidote, grace-filled generosity. Malachi 3, 8 through 10, the text says, Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, How have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. The idea is not a hocus-pocus. It's the idea of the consequences of not living out God's design, the negative consequences. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. Do you notice what Malachi is doing from a literary standpoint? He has already introduced the idea of cheating God. Now he raises the metaphorical ante up higher. And that is twice robbing God. You ever been robbed? I know some of our students on their high school trip this summer to St. Louis had their bus broken into and lost some of their bags and stuff. What do you feel like when someone robs you? Someone breaks into your home, steals your wallet, steals your intellectual property through plagiarism? You feel deeply violated. Malachi is saying, that's how God's feeling right now. God gets right to the point, doesn't he? I mean, Malachi doesn't beat around the bush. They've been robbing God in their tithes and offerings. And what we see is spiritual apathy manifests itself in many ways, but primarily here in this text, it is giving God our leftovers in our place of worship. And often we do the same, don't we? God is the owner of all wealth, all money, all resources. The psalmist is clear that the earth is the Lord's and everything it contains. That means, in a sense, none of us are ultimately the owner. We're just a steward of it for a short time. So Malachi addresses where we live. The principle of Scripture all the way through it is God's design is that we would give God our best. Proverbs 3.9 says this, and notice the word honor. It's used three or four times the same Hebrew word in Malachi. And it's not a grammatical statement. It's a grammatical imperative. Honor the Lord God of the universe with your wealth and with the first fruits of your produce. Not leftovers, the first of your income. That's what the text says. Gracious generosity is the most powerful antidote to spiritual apathy. See, we are made in God's image. We are image bearers. And if we understand Genesis 1 and 2, we realize that being selfish, being greedy, being ungenerous or non-generous is the most opposite of how we were created, the most unnatural that we were created to be generous 
in the image of a generous God. That's why Jesus says in the New Testament, it's more blessed to give than receive. Jesus understood God's design in human flourishing. Malachi does too. Malachi says, bring the full tithe to God's house. What's a tithe? That's something you put on your neck, right? A tithe is a 10%, a 10th portion of your wealth and income. Some of you are like, we're here last week. I like last week's message. It was about grace. This week's message, whoo! Not that they're unconnected because lots of grace here, but a pastor talking about money? Some of your flags are up, and perhaps you have some reason to be. And if you're a part of Christ's community, you know that our teaching team teaches God's Word the best we can faithfully all the way through it. It's not about what we want from you. It's what we want for you that you would experience the joy and love of God's design in every dimension of your life, including the joy of financial generosity. This is where Malachi is, and we need to dwell on it a little bit. Jesus spoke a a lot about money, didn't he? If you read the New Testament, what we do with it, how we invest it, how we spend it, how we give it. And Jesus said that how we deal with our wealth and money and material realities How we deal with them reflects where our heart is. Jesus said, where your heart is, there your treasure will follow. Notice the progression. God says it through Malachi. Get your financial offering and giving in order and your heart will follow. Often we think the generosity, when we get the feeling, the liver shiver. I feel like giving today. It's a good thing. But our heart follows obedience. Where we put our treasure, our heart follows. In Christ's community, giving of our income and wealth is both a God-honoring discipline and a gracious delight. In light of Malachi's clear teaching and the rest of the text of Holy Scripture, we believe our primary giving is connected to our place of worship. This is the biblical teaching from Genesis to Revelation. The house of God language in Malachi is picked up by Rabbi Paul in the New Testament under grace in 1 Timothy 3.15, and very clearly Paul says the house of God is the local church. 10% tithe of our income and wealth is a baseline of obedience for the apprentice of Jesus. A grace-filled generosity goes beyond that. We have resources and paper and on the web to help you think through God's design for giving. One of them is a little paperback or paper pamphlet called Giving God Our Best. I think there might be some left. I'm not sure from the first service. Go to our website. We'd love to help you think this through. Malachi is very clear here. The God-honoring giving tied to our worship and our place of worship requires the right heart, but it also requires the right capacity. Where would the good Samaritan been without financial capacity to meet a need? Some of us long to be generous, but we have the inability because we do not have the capacity. Capacity is not just how much we make, it's how much we spend within our income. 
our highly indebted lifestyles, overly busy lives, do not have the capacity to be generous in all dimensions of life, service, caring, forgiveness, and money. Spiritual apathy finds its cure, now like I says, in three things, heartfelt repentance, gracious generosity, and hope-filled obedience. Notice chapter 4 builds at the end of this book in verses 4 through 6. He says, remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules that I commanded at Horeb for all of Israel. Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. This is the last writing of the Old Testament and anticipates Jesus coming. And in light of the Messiah coming, notice the imperative. He's already said, return to me now. He says, remember my word. Obey my promises. Obey my word. 400 years they're going to wait before Jesus comes in the fullness of time to come as the one who would shed his blood for you and me that we'd have eternal life. Jesus came not to dismiss the law, but to fulfill it. And Jesus said, he who has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me and he who loves me will be loved by my Father and I will love him and disclose myself to him. Grace-filled, grace-motivated obedience transforms apathetic hearts into passionate hearts. So where are you this morning? Where am I this morning? Have you embraced Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? Have you experienced the indescribable gift that Jesus came to this earth, he died for you, he loves you, and offers you eternal life because of his atoning work on the cross to satisfy the holy, righteous wrath of God for you and me? Have you embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior? He wants your heart first not just your money and your wealth, but they are connected. In fact, money and wealth can be the greatest idol of the heart that keeps us from embracing Christ. Where's your heart this morning? Do you know Christ? Are you spiritually passionate for Him? Say, I'm a Christian. My heart's apathetic. Left unchecked, just let me say this, spiritual apathy inevitably leads to spiritual atrophy. How many of us had a broken bone and had a cast on for a while? What happens to that bone and that muscle? We get it out of the cast, it's what? What happened to my strength? It's gone. Atrophy. That's the condition of the human heart that's disobedient and dishonoring God. Over time, it's atrophy and then death. Is your heart lukewarm? Are you just going through the motion, giving God the leftovers of a busy, marginless life? You're exhausted, your talents are hidden, and your treasures are idolatrous. I know of nothing that breaks the idolatrous hold of money and wealth than becoming a generous person. So let me suggest three questions I'd like you to write down as you think about the application to this message. First, what are the affections of your heart telling you? What we love, we sacrifice for. We talk about, we praise, we pray. What does your heart really love? If you put your treasure in the right place, your heart will follow. Secondly, what are our checkbooks telling us? What are they telling us? Our portfolios. Priorities of your pocketbook tell a revealing story of what your heart loves most, what my heart loves most. 
What's the story of your pocketbook? Are you experiencing the joyful obedience of living life as God designed you to live in all areas, including financial generosity? And many of you are. When I go places, I brag on you that you are a marvelous, generous congregation because many of you are living into God's design with great joy and blessing. But some here this morning are missing God's design, His blessing of generosity. And maybe the Holy Spirit has prompted your heart this morning to say attention to that disobedience. Attention. For others this morning, your heart wants to give, but you don't have the capacity because of financial decisions. So get some financial counseling. We have a lot of that here available different ways at Christ Community. So you can be financially fit and you can give generously. And if you are a parent here this, this morning, teach your children, model to your children wise financial management and stewardship. The way we learn about money and giving and spending and honoring God with money is through our family first. Parents, what many Christian parents do that I think is so wise is they have three envelopes for their kids' allowance or their work. If you're a student, you're working part-time, same thing, they have three envelopes. The first envelope is giving. 10% goes in the envelope and is brought to church with them as an act of worship. Secondly, is an envelope for saving. Whatever your percentage, whatever your commitment, a portion is saved for college, for future, to have skin in the game. And then there's a section of spending for what you spend with. Wherever you are in your resources, I encourage you to begin there. And students, when you're younger, when you're not making a lot of money, if you learn this discipline now, when you have more income, Lord willing, you will love this discipline later. And we're never too young or too old to grow in generosity. So lastly, where is our hope pointing to? Listen, I play a game. Maybe you do. It's called, if I won the lottery. <laughs> we have so much fun thinking about what we do with the money. And uh, Liz has got a gift of giving and generosity more than anybody I know. So we have all these ideas. But let me tell you, you have won the lottery. If you've embraced Christ as your Lord and Savior, you have the inexhaustible riches of God himself in all dimensions. And in Jesus, all the riches of knowledge and wisdom reside. As a gift, you've been given the lottery of lotteries to know the Son of God and to live the life he called you to live. It's there for us to embrace by his grace. So often our spiritual apathy is reflected in a lack of joyful generosity fueled by fear. Fear of what the future will bring. Fear if I'll have enough money when I'm old. Fear I need this money for college or this, 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 and this. We are called to live by faith first and not fear. I love the old hymn writer. He says, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. On Christ the solid rock I stand. All that ground is sinking sand. So what is the condition of your heart this morning? There's a silent killer at work, a killer of spiritual apathy. The good news is that apathetic hearts can be transformed into passionate hearts. C.S. Lewis, 
in his book, The God in the Dock, says it so well. He says, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. And if it's true, it's of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Honoring God with all we are and all we have is of infinite importance for you and me today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we wrestle, all of us, including me, with the idolatrous grip of money and wealth. It's not how much we have, it's what has us. And Lord, we just want to offer it to you for your purposes. We confess we have robbed you, we have given you leftovers of our time, talent, and treasure. So Holy Spirit, we want to be all yours, all in, and honor you with worship that is worthy of you. Give us the grace to press into your design in all of life, including the resources financially you give us. In Jesus' holy name, amen.